Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Uh, Fantastic. Welcome everyone. Good morning. Um, We're midway through our Advent series. Advent is this lead up to Christmas. It's like this pregnant pause. It's not the countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, you know the numbers, um, right the way down to your open presence and it's very exciting. Advent is this this pause in this waiting, in this excitement for the coming of Jesus. But we're, we're not looking at the usual characters of uh, the shepherds or the wise men or Mary or Joseph, though that is a spectacular name. You know, if there's any babies coming, that's a great name. Thank you. Um, it's a great name. Uh, but we're looking at the character of John the Baptist, who's Jesus's cousin. And we're not looking at, like, the nativity scene. We're looking 30 years later as John's ministry kind of dovetails into Jesus's. And there's this really beautiful image where John the Baptist essentially embodies Advent, that he is the lead up to Jesus. And it's pretty cool. So here's the, here's the character that we're looking at. If we head to John chapter 1, verse 6 to 8... I believe it will pop up. Fantastic. Um, Now, just a quick thing before we read this. John 1, this is John, John, right, who wrote this, is not John the Baptist. Different John. Classic Bible. So, there is John the disciple who is writing this, and there is John the Baptist who we're focusing on. And John the disciple does a couple of interesting things with this passage, with this whole chapter. He constantly refers back, calls back to Genesis, so the first line is, uh, in, the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, which is a callback to Genesis 1, where in the beginning was God. And so John is using this ability to call back, to kind of raise in people's minds the idea of, oh, there are these other images connected to this story. Very clever man. So I'll, I'll, we'll see, it's Christmas season, you know, bit of interaction. I'm now on holidays. I'm a school teacher. And so I've got a little bit more energy than maybe some of you. But let's just see if we can have a little bit of interaction. So we'll see if we can practice this idea of calling back. I'm going to start a Christmas carol and you're going to do the next line. Now, I thought about singing this, but I can't sing. And that is not, and that's, that's not a gift. That is not a gift that you want to receive. So uh, if I go jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle... Oh, you're very smart. That's what you do in education, that you encourage. And then if I was to say silent night, the next line would be? Yeah, right. So you get it. So you start something and it's supposed to throw your mind to something else, to the next bit. So John is using this a couple of different times throughout this passage to throw our mind back elsewhere in Scripture. So we come to John 1, verse 6 to 8, and John, the disciple, starts out talking about Jesus, a bit of an introduction for Jesus, and then provides some context to the character of John the Baptist, and then we get to this bit here. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light, he was simply a witness to tell about the light. Essentially, what John the disciple is saying about John the Baptist is that, I'm going to say that a few times this morning, that's, that's like a tongue twister. What essentially he is saying is that John's role was to point people towards Jesus and to help people navigate this journey between where they're at and where God is, where God wants to meet us. He then talks for a little bit about the character of Jesus and the character of John and how they intertwine and then we tell 
then he tells a three-day story about John the Baptist, and that's where we're going to spend some time focusing on. So day one, John the Baptist, he's now John the Baptist, Baptist. he's been baptizing in this town, uh, near this town called Bethany, near the River Jordan, which Benish talked about last week, and there are these like Jewish leaders, these spiritual authorities that have heard about John the Baptist, and they want to find out who he is. So they come all the way from Jerusalem down to find John the Baptist, and they ask him, John, who are you? And they have three ideas about who they think he is. They think he might be Elijah, this ancient prophet who was taken up in a chariot of fire that God took, he never saw death, and that maybe God has sent him back with a message. Then they ask, hey, look, are you the prophet? This prophet being probably what some scholars believe as someone that Moses refers to in one of Moses' understanding of the Messiah. When we read that, we would think, oh, that's the Messiah. And then they ask, hey, look, are you the Christ? Are you, are you actually the Messiah? And John's response to them is like, nah, man, none of those. None of that is me. In fact, I'm the one that's to prepare the way for the person that I think you want. But what's interesting is these religious leaders kind of just tally off at this point. Then we've got day two. Day two is interesting. Day two, John gets a little bit excited. He sees his cousin Jesus in town, in Bethany, and he sees Jesus, and all of a sudden, out, what, what comes out of his mouth is he just starts declaring who Jesus is quite publicly to Jesus and the surrounding people. And he starts out, and he's like, this is, this is the Lamb of God. This is, the, this is God himself come to take away the sins from humanity. And there's this image here that John has been calling people to repentance, to turn away from their sin and to orient, orientate themselves towards Christ or towards God. And then he's saying, or his God come to take away that sin to restore this relationship. And he goes on for this for a little bit, and then he starts to describe what he saw when he baptized Jesus. And what he says he saw was that he heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he saw the Holy Spirit come and descend on him and remain on him like a dove. Now, this is another callback. You see, there is a story in Genesis where a dove is involved in the story of Noah. So, humanity is in a depraved state, they're not doing very well, things are not all G, as the young people say. I actually think that's too old now, I think there's, there's other words to describe. Things aren't going well, and so God decides he's going to cleanse the earth, he finds one righteous man, that man is Noah, and he says, I'm going to start again with you. So, Noah, his wife, his sons and his sons' wives get on this ark as well as all the animals, and then they go, the, the floods, the rains come, the boat goes up, humanity is wiped out, and then the flood, uh, the flood descends, and this boat lands on a mountain. And then Noah sends out a dove. The dove can't find anything, it comes back. Noah waits another seven days, and this dove flies out, finds an olive branch, and comes back. And this is a symbol, most scholars will be like, hey, look, this is a symbol of peace between God and humanity. There's something beautiful at play here that God is saying, hey, look, for a moment, there's peace. For a moment, there's been restoration. For, for a moment, there's things that have been made right. But if you read scripture, and if you're a human, you would recognize, hey, look, that didn't last. But what's interesting is that Noah sends out the dove again seven days later. So Noah sends out this dove, and it doesn't come back. And some scholars marry up these two passages saying, hey, look, there is this bird that goes out in search of peace, a lasting peace. And this dove that descends upon Jesus, and it flies out over the Old Testament, flies out over kings, flies out over, 
over Egypt. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac flies out over the, the entry into the promised land, over the judges, over, over prophets, over kings, over the exile, over the coming back, the building of the temple, the destruction of the temple, over 400 years of silence and lands and it says rest remains on Jesus. And it's like there's this picture of this dove that flies out looking for a lasting solution to the peace that we are looking for. And it goes in search of something that is lasting, something that is permanent and it comes and it finds a home on Jesus. And there's this beautiful image that it's like, hey, look, we, we are not a solution to our own humanity, but it's in the person of Jesus that we actually find lasting and permanent peace. So that's day two. Then day three, John, John the Baptist is with two of his disciples, two of his, two of his people, right? And to understand what it means to be a disciple, it's not just, oh, I like Ben, and I like how he teaches, and Greenhouse has two fans now, so that's pretty cool. So I'm, I'm now, I'm now going to be part of, I'm, I'm going to be a disciple of Greenhouse. No, to, to be a disciple means that you would wholly apprentice yourself to something, that you would allow your life to be shaped by someone or by something. And if I'm honest with you, which I will attempt to do, I have, I, growing up, I was discipled by two things, two things, significantly discipled me. One was Jesus, of course. The second was Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I was not allowed Pokemon. I was not allowed The Simpsons. I had to burn my Pokemon cards. That was the thing. It's a story for another time. Working through that now. But I was allowed to watch Lord of the Rings as a kid because the writer was a Christian. Tolkien was a Christian. And so my life became about Lord of the Rings and a little bit of Jesus. And so I would like collect all like the little, they had like little Lord of the Rings Warhammer figures that you could like paint and you'd roll dice. It was like amazing. And then like we got our mums to make us costumes and we would make wooden swords. And then we would teach our little friends in kindergarten that they would be our like little hobbits. And we would, we would, we would run around illegally with swords at school and like we play and like we would be the characters we would embody the characters we'd go over each other's houses houses and we'd watch Lord of the Rings on repeat like I I was in the way of Lord of the Rings now side note I think only children only child people are weird right I'm one but I think there's a tendency to be a little bit weird because you get away with doing things that aren't socially acceptable right (laughs) I think if you have siblings, your siblings very happily let you know when you do something weird, right? That's what I've seen, not experienced. It's what I've seen of my friends that have siblings, right? And that you are very happy to allow uh, your siblings to know when they're being weird. So, what I used to do, this perfect culmination of my discipleship with Jesus and Lord of the Rings, I would put on Awesome God, I had a CD player, it was a Hillsong United track, track 13, still remember, you could have a repeat button, and it had this epic drum solo in it, and so it's like, you hype you up. So I'd, I'd put this CD player on real loud, awesome God, on repeat, I'd put on my Lord of the Rings get up, <laughs> bow and arrow, sword, everything, I was Aragon, Legolas, and Gimli at once, so, and, and I would be like, Jesus, if there is true prayer, if I was, if there was any way, if I could like slay orc demons for you, I would love to do that. <laughs> and no one told me it was weird. No one. So I was an only child and my parents were like, oh, he's being creative. It's fine. <laughs> really weird. Now, it's somewhat acceptable, right? It's somewhat acceptable at like eight, nine, ten years of age. It's less acceptable at 14. It's even less acceptable at 14 when you take this, the, the, 
uh, CD player outside with an extension cord, put it on full volume, set up cardboard orcs around the front yard, and are doing roly-polies and shooting d demonic orcs and saving, saving the elves and, and people for Jesus all at the same time. So that was my experience of discipleship growing up. But what's important is, in this, in this model of discipleship, that there is this all-inness to it. It's, there's this element of not caring what people think, this element of like, hey, look, it doesn't matter what others are doing. It's like, no, this is the journey I'm on. I'm wholly apprenticing myself to another. And so here is John with two of his disciples, Andrew and another disciple. This other disciple does not get a shout out. He does not get a name. It's like when you get thanked and it's Christmas party time for everyone, you know, and they like, oh, thank you for doing this and this project and this project. They're like, thank you everyone else for everyone, for everything else you did. And you're like, well, I didn't really get a shout out, but I kind of did. And so I feel like it's a little bit like that for this other disciple. So we've got Andrew who gets the shout out and this other disciple who's like, he gets kind of a mention. So these two uh, gentlemen are apprenticed to John. They are following in the way of John. And then on this third day, Jesus walks past and John points to Jesus and he says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. That's the one that my ministry has been about. And these two disciples go to explore what John has said. And it's, they, they go and they spend an afternoon and evening with Jesus. And the word used there is that they manow, manow, manow. I'm not very good at the the thing. But it means abide. So they go to Jesus and they abide with him for an evening. And what's interesting is that this Andrew, that was John's disciple, now switches his discipleship to Jesus. This then becomes the apostle uh, Andrew, the disciple of Jesus Andrew. And he's so excited that he's found the Messiah that he runs home, probably late into the evening, finds his brother Simon, who's probably sleeping, because he's a champ, and then drags him out and says, I have found the Messiah, you need to meet him. Takes him to Jesus, and Jesus' first interaction with him is, hey, look, your name is no longer Simon, it's now Peter. And this is also a callback to Scripture, that Abraham and Jacob both had their name changed. Abraham went from Abram to Abraham, Jacob went from Jacob to Israel, and what God was doing in those moments is reshaping someone's identity, reforming them to how God saw them. And so there's this beautiful picture here, that here's John doing his thing, pointing people towards Jesus, helping prepare them in their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, and then John, even with his own followers, says, hey, look, that's the Messiah, and he's willing to lose them to Jesus. And what's beautiful is, is that John then steps out his second fiddle at this point. It's no, the story's no longer about him. It's no longer centered on John. Jesus takes center stage. And what's beautiful is that we have this moment where, because John was so willing to be like, hey, look, my life is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about pointing people towards Jesus. It's about making the way for people to meet Jesus. Is is that there's this man that has his identity reshaped and it's such an image of what we get to do in this season. That perhaps this, in this Christmas season, it's not about inviting someone to a Sunday gathering or a Christmas Eve gathering. It's about, hey, look, how can I make the way for someone to meet Jesus in my world? And maybe that's as simple as being like, how are you doing this Christmas season? Some people do it really tough at Christmas, and so someone to come alongside them and ask, how are you actually doing, can help to remove and help to make the way and connect someone, someone to Jesus. Maybe it's as simple as like, hey, look, I, I, I've been financially blessed. 
I have some, I know it's a difficult time for lots of people, but maybe you're on the other side of things and you're like, I have an opportunity to bless a neighbor or someone at work where I can, I can come alongside and I can provide a presence or I can provide a meal for someone. And maybe someone who would never set foot in this building, but you can help make a way between Jesus and someone else. And there's this beautiful moment where we have to actually echo John's ministry, echo what he was doing, which was making a way between Jesus and others. Team, if you just want to come up. There's something really beautiful about understanding that the weight of other people's faith and spirituality doesn't rest on us, that it actually rests on Jesus. And our role is just to point another to another. It's to try and make people's burdens easier to try and make them lighter, to try and make a way between God and people. And we get to partner with that. And we're in a beautiful season in in this lead up to Christmas, in this Advent season, where our actions, where we go during the week, can actually point people to Jesus without them ever setting foot in this building. So I wonder if we could just, as, as we sing and as we take a moment, that you would take some time and you'd be like, God, is there someone in my world that I could make way for? Is there someone in my world that I could be like, hey, look, they're far from God or they're doing it tough or they might never set foot in this room, but hey, you know what? I can actually love them in this way. And maybe as simple as that is, that's all that needs to happen. The weight of other people's relationship with God doesn't sit on us, but we get the privilege of partnering with God in pointing another to another. Let me pray for us and then the team. Father, I thank you for what a beautiful time this is. And Father, I pray that we would not lose focus on the point of this season, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so, Father, I pray that we would be able to love our people well, that we would love the people in our world beautifully, that it would be about us giving to them wholeheartedly, a gift of love. And hopefully in that response, Father, that it would help to turn them towards you, Father, that it would help to remove baggage and hurt and pain and to be seen. And hopefully, Father, I pray that they would feel like they are seen by you.